Hey guys, welcome back to Holidays After Dark, the podcast that explores the strange and unusual sides of the holidays we all know and love. I'm your host, Kristen. I recently returned from Salem, Massachusetts. I was there for an early summer vacation. I first visited Salem back in 2013, and it instantly became one of my favorite cities in the world. As an avid Halloween lover, I quickly realized that in Salem, every day feels like Halloween. There are countless shops with merchandise depicting pumpkins, ghosts, and of course, witches. Even the police cars have a witch in their department logo. Salem is known for its celebration of Halloween, which lasts the entire month of October. The events sell out and local hotels fill up very far in advance during this time of year. Salem is also the only place I've ever been where at any moment I can see numerous people who look like me. Meaning those of us who wear all black regardless of the time of year and weather, and who prefer the alternative over the usual or stereotypical. The goth culture is strong in Salem. I wanted to do this bonus episode to share my awesome experience of visiting Salem for the second time and tell you a little bit about all the things I've done and experienced in this wonderful town. I know it's not directly holiday-related, but it's just too good of an opportunity to pass up. But before I tell you about what I did in Salem, I first need to start with the unique unimaginable and tragic history that makes up the town's past. The Salem Witch Trials occurred in colonial Massachusetts between 1692 and 1693. More than 200 people were accused of practicing witchcraft, the devil's magic, and 20 were executed. Eventually, the colony admitted the trials were a mistake and compensated the families of those convicted. Since then, the story of the trials has become synonymous with paranoia, injustice, and being judged simply for being who you are. It continues to captivate us more than 300 years later. Several centuries ago, many practicing Christians and those of other religions had a strong belief that the devil could give certain people, known as witches, the power to harm others in return for their loyalty. A witchcraft craze rippled through Europe from the 1300s to the end of the 1600s. Tens of thousands of supposed witches, mostly women, were executed. Though the Salem witch trials began just as the European craze was winding down, local circumstances help explain their onset. In 1689, English rulers William and Mary started a war with France in the American colonies. Known as King William's War to Colonists, it ravaged regions of upstate New York, Nova Scotia, and Quebec, sending refugees into the county of Essex and specifically Salem Village in the Massachusetts Bay Colony. Salem Village is present-day Danvers, Massachusetts. Colonial Salem Town became what's now Salem. The displaced people created a strain on Salem's resources. 
This aggravated the existing rivalry between families with ties to the wealth of the Port of Salem and those who still depended on agriculture. Controversy also brewed over Reverend Samuel Paris, who became Salem Village's first ordained minister in 1689 and was disliked because of his rigid ways and greedy nature. The Puritan villagers believed all the quarreling was the work of the devil. In January of 1692, Reverend Paris's daughter, Elizabeth, age 9, and niece, Abigail Williams, age 11, started having fits. They screamed, threw things, uttered peculiar sounds, and contorted themselves into strange positions, and a local doctor blamed the supernatural. Another girl, Anne Putnam, age 11, experienced similar episodes. On February 29th, under pressure from magistrates Jonathan Corwin and John Hawthorne, the girls blamed three women for afflicting them. Tichuba, the Paris's Caribbean slave, Sarah Good, a homeless beggar, and Sarah Osborne, an elderly impoverished woman. All three women were brought before the local magistrates and interrogated for several days, starting on March 1, 1692. Osborne claimed innocence, as did Good, but Tichuba confessed, The devil came to me and bid me serve him. She described elaborate images of black dogs, red cats, yellow birds, and a black man who wanted her to sign his book. She admitted that she signed the book and said there were several other witches looking to destroy the Puritans. All three women were put in jail. With the seed of paranoia planted, a stream of accusations followed for the next few months. Charges against Martha Corey, a loyal member of the church in Salem Village, greatly concerned the community. If she could be a witch, then anyone could. Magistrates even questioned Sarah Good's four-year-old daughter, Dorothy, and her timid answers were construed as a confession. The questioning got more serious in April when Deputy Governor Thomas Danforth and his assistants attended the hearings. Dozens of people from Salem and other Massachusetts villages were brought in for questioning. On May 27, 1692, Governor William Phipps ordered the establishment of a special court to hear and decide cases for Suffolk, Essex, and Middlesex counties. The first case brought to the special court was Bridget Bishop, an older woman known for her gossipy habits and promiscuity. When asked if she committed witchcraft, Bishop responded, I am as innocent as the child unborn. The defense must not have been convincing because she was found guilty and on June 10th became the first person hanged on what was later called Gallows Hill. Five days later, respected minister Cotton Mather wrote a letter imploring the court not to allow spectral evidence, which is testimony about dreams and visions. The court largely ignored this request and five people were sentenced and hanged in July, five more in August, and eight in September. On October 3rd, following in his son's footsteps, Increase Mather, then president of Harvard, denounced the use of spectral evidence and stated, 
It were better that ten suspected witches should escape than one innocent person be condemned. Governor Phipps, in response to Mather's plea and his own wife being questioned for witchcraft, prohibited further arrests, released many accused witches, and dissolved the special court on October 29th. Phipps replaced it with a superior court of judicature, which disallowed spectral evidence and only condemned three out of 56 defendants. Phipps eventually pardoned all who were in prison on witchcraft charges by May 1693. But the damage had been done. Nineteen were hanged on Gallows Hill. A 71-year-old man was pressed to death with heavy stones. Several people died in jail, and nearly 200 people overall had been accused of practicing the devil's magic. Following the trials and executions, many involved, like Judge Samuel Sewell, publicly confessed error and guilt. On January 14, 1697, the general court ordered a day of fasting and soul-searching in honor of the tragedy in Salem. In 1702, the court declared the trials unlawful, and in 1711, the colony passed a bill restoring the rights and good names of those accused and granted restitution to be paid to their heirs. However, it was not until 1957, more than 250 years later, that Massachusetts formally apologized for the events of 1692. In the 20th century, artists and scientists alike continued to be fascinated by the Salem witch trials. Playwright Arthur Miller resurrected the tale with his 1953 play, The Crucible, using the trials as an allegory for the McCarthyism paranoia in the 1950s. Additionally, numerous hypotheses have been devised to explain the strange behavior that occurred in Salem in 1692. One of the most concrete studies, published in the journal Science in 1976, blamed the abnormal habits of the accused on the fungus ergot, which can be found in rye, wheat, and other cereal grasses. Toxicologists say that eating ergot-contaminated foods can lead to muscle spasms, vomiting, delusions, and hallucinations. Also, the fungus thrives in warm and damp climates, not too unlike the swampy meadows in Salem Village where rye was the staple grain during the spring and summer months. All right, so now that I've shared some about the horrifying history of Salem, I'd love to share what I did during my two and a half days in Salem this time around. We stayed at the historic Hawthorne Hotel in downtown Salem. Established in 1925, it was named after local author Nathaniel Hawthorne, who wrote novels such as The Scarlet Letter and The House of Seven Gables. The hotel is a six-story colonial revival-style building that has 89 rooms. In addition to being historic, it is also rumored that the hotel is haunted. One of the most haunted hotels in America, in fact. Some rooms, such as room 325 and room 612, 
as well as the entire sixth floor, are said to be especially haunted, and guests have reported seeing a ghostly woman walking the halls, hearing strange noises, and feeling as though they had been touched by an invisible force. I stayed on the third floor, but not in room 325. While I didn't experience any obvious signs of ghosts or spirits, one of the bathroom doors in our room swayed easily on its own without any of us touching it, and made a very creepy creaking noise every time it moved. The Halloween lover in me wants to believe it was the result of supernatural forces at work. Over the years, many celebrities have stayed at the Hawthorne, including Johnny Cash, Betty Davis, and George Bush, just to name a few. Multiple movies and television shows have filmed scenes at the Hawthorne, including the 1970s sitcom Bewitched. On the day we arrived, after checking into the Hawthorne Hotel, we visited the Satanic Temple. As a member, I was very happy to finally get to visit their headquarters in Salem. Housed within the Satanic Temple is Salem Art Gallery. They feature rotating exhibits. When I was there, they had an exhibit called Wolf Dream on display, and proceeds from the art sold went to the Wolf Hollow Conservation and Education Center to help preserve these wonderful animals. Regardless of your religious beliefs, I would encourage anyone to stop by the Satanic Temple if you find yourself in Salem. They are open to the public and very welcoming. They have lots of items, art, and books on display that help explain what being part of the Satanic Temple really entails. And no, we aren't devil worshippers looking to sacrifice animals. After doing a little shopping, we had dinner at Rockefeller's. This restaurant is in a prime location on Essex Street, which is the street in the heart of the town that contains all the shops and many tourist attractions. Like many buildings in Salem, Rockefeller's is rumored to be haunted. The building was originally owned by Salem's first church and was completed in 1826. The church used it as their meeting house, but rented out the first floor to various businesses. Nearly 50 years later, around 1874, the building was remodeled in the style of Victorian Gothic. It eventually became home to the jewelry store Daniel Lowe & Company, who acquired the building after Salem's first church merged with the Unitarian North Church. Daniel Lowe & Company hit it big in 1891 with a silver souvenir they dubbed the Witch Spoon of Salem, which they advertised in nationally circulated magazines. With their success the following year, the company decided to launch the country's first mail-order catalog. In the early 1990s, the building was sold to a developer, and then less than a decade later, it was sold again. These new owners would go on to start Rockefeller's on the first floor and turned the upstairs into a space for banquets and events. On any given night, people walking by Rockefeller's just may see orbs floating around the second-story window. Some have even, on occasion, spotted a full-form apparition. Two of these ghosts that haunt Rockefeller's are not as shy as the others, and thus they have little reservation about appearing in full form with great frequency. 
The first of these two daring spirits is a man who dresses in a black suit sort of like a minister. The second is a woman who wears an early 20th century style blue dress. Under this historic and haunted building, there are tunnels. These tunnels were once used by smugglers as a way to transport their illegal possessions. But the tunnels were also used for a more noble reason at one time. The series of old tunnels beneath the building were a crucial part in the operation of the Underground Railroad. Abolitionists would aid slaves who had escaped the hell of plantation life through these passageways of freedom. The tunnels beneath the Daniel Lowe are also rumored to be the source of some of the hauntings at the building, including the ghost of the woman in the blue dress, otherwise known as the Blue Lady. Oh, and besides all this, their clam chowder was delicious. Another Salem restaurant we ended up eating at twice for breakfast is one of my absolute favorites. I had thought about their giant pancakes many times over the past nine years since the first time I was there. This lovely little place is called Red Sandwich Shop. Even though they have the word sandwich in their name, I would argue that Red's is actually most known for their delicious breakfasts. Red's is in a building that dates back to 1698, when it was called the London Coffee House and was a meeting place of patriots before the American Revolution. The current restaurant has been around since 1945, and it's an absolute must when you're in Salem. Seriously. After eating at Red's on the first full day in Salem, we went to the Witch Dungeon Museum. While there, the staff gave a brief reenactment of one of the witchcraft trials, and then our guide took the group on a tour of the underground dungeon replica. This demonstrates the confinement conditions many of those accused of witchcraft were held in. It's dark, dreary, there's no plumbing, food and clean water were virtually non-existent, and it very much feels like you're in a haunted house. I highly recommend, as both times I've been there, the guides have been great, and it really gives you a realistic sense of the horrors the accused had to deal with back in 1692. After the Witch Dungeon Museum, the rest of the day was filled with shopping and two walking tours. If you love all things black, alternative, spooky, and Halloween-related, the shopping is really endless in Salem. I quickly have to set limits for myself when I'm there, as I could easily go on a full-blown shopping spree at every store. Walking tours are definitely something that I recommend in Salem. Salem itself is very walkable, and these tours are a good way to see a lot of the town and learn a lot about the history in a relatively short period of time, usually just one or two hours. We did a daytime history tour and a nighttime mysteries and murders tour. The nighttime one was my favorite, as I absolutely loved the vibe Salem gives off at night, and I enjoyed learning about some things that have happened in Salem that went beyond the witch trials. The next day, which was our final day in Salem, we paid a visit to the Charter Street Cemetery, also known as the Old Burying Point. It is Salem's oldest cemetery, and many notable people are buried there, including a gentleman who came over on the Mayflower and witchcraft trial judge John Hawthorne. 
Adjacent to the cemetery is the Salem Witch Trials Memorial, which commemorates each of the victims of the witch trials with inscribed granite stones. People often leave flowers on the stones in order to pay their respects. The last stop in Salem was the House of Seven Gables. Built in 1668 for Captain John Turner, the House of Seven Gables is a colonial mansion. The Turner family remained as the home's owner for three generations. Initially known as the Turner House, the House of Seven Gables got its new title from author Nathaniel Hawthorne's novel of the same name, which he wrote after being inspired by the home and its architecture. While visiting the House of Seven Gables, you can tour it, the surrounding grounds and gardens, as well as explore multiple other structures that are on the grounds. It is truly a picturesque landscape oozing with history. Because we were on a bit of a schedule, we didn't pay for the formal guided tour of the house, but the visit was still worth our time regardless. Well, I hope you enjoyed taking this journey to Salem with me, even though we weren't there in person together. I know this episode wasn't directly holiday-related, but let's face it, in Salem, every day is Halloween. <laughs> I would love to hear your holiday stories, fun facts, or weird trivia. Also, if you have any travel stories related to any holiday, I'd love to hear about those, too. Email Kristen at HolidaysAfterDark.com, direct message at Holidays Podcast on Instagram or Twitter, or find us on Facebook. I'll include these in the show notes. I would love to feature your story or fun fact on a future episode of Holidays After Dark. Also, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you never miss your dose of holiday darkness. A rate or review would also be greatly appreciated. Today I will leave you with a quote from Martin Luther King Jr., which, even though it was obviously spoken hundreds of years after the Salem Witch Trials, very much applies to all cases of wrongful conviction. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. <laughs> <laughs>